Welcome to Useful Idiots. Welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Matt Taibbi. I'm Katie Halper. We're starting this week with a continuity error. I like the way you're just owning that. Yes, welcome to Useful Idiots' continuity error. You're going to notice that we're not dressed the same in this segment as we are later in the right. segment because of a couple of things that happened. Yeah. Number one, we made a mistake. Our, we had to actually excise. Matt made a mistake. I made a mistake. We're keeping we're not, it in. We're keeping it? F it, we're, we're doing it live. Really? F it, we're keeping it in, yeah. <laughs> Fuck it, let's do it live. Yeah, let's do it live. So isn't this weird? Uh, we, we taped, uh, and it's, it's a completely not terribly important story, right. oh, like, uh, unless you're a member of the species. Right. Uh, we we did a, uh, a, a basically a, a bit about Sri Lanka again, about a, a species of panther that was thought to be extinct, and then there was a picture taken of one, right. a black panther in Sri Lanka, and I my isn't this weird this week was, hey, an extinct animal is no longer extinct. Right. And then the instant we did this, we taped it, it comes out that experts now believe it's not that panther. It's just a regular panther with a with a pigment mutation. Wow. Isn't that fascinating, though? Isn't that weird? Isn't that weird? <laughs> okay, so we got another isn't that weird. It's right. a meta isn't that weird. It's right, yeah. Isn't, it's, that, weird it's, about it's, an isn't it's, that weird? It's turtles all the way down. But first of all, we have a great show. Oh, yeah. It's going to include an interview with Dennis Kucinich uh, and some other right. stuff. Um, but we should do an update because friend of show, uh, Glenn Greenwald, whom we inter- interviewed last week, right. uh, you know, there's been a major development. Um, charges were filed, although it's been a little bit misreported. The federal prosecutors in Brazil have brought charges, but he's not yet indicted. They have an unusual system there where the it's not official until a judge signs off on it. So that happened, and it was a big international story. And uh, you know, we talked to him. Uh, or I talked to him on Wednesday. Do you want to say anything about this no, first? You, well, I would like your. Uh, you're the one who spoke to him, so I mean, you uh, just tell us for people who don't know the story. And you can find it now in, in Rolling Stone, right? By the time you, you can, yeah, you can find it in Rolling Stone. I interviewed him yesterday, and that's it's actually already out. So right. for people who don't know the story, the Intercept Brazil did a, a series of re, uh, exposés over the summer in which essentially a hacker collective had been intercepting the phone calls of a bunch of uh, Brazilian officials. And they were uh, digging underneath this thing called Operation Car Wash, which was uh, the... Anti-corruption. It was an an anti-corruption probe. Anti-corruption in quotes. Yeah. Yeah, And the the ultimate result of this, it was was uh, ostensibly a bribery case involving the former president, Lula. Lula. Uh And uh, they intercepted all these phone calls and communications, which showed that the prosecution was kind of bent. Right. Yeah, very and much, this yeah. the, the this led to Lula being invalidated as a candidate, and then after that led to Bolsonaro, uh, Jair Bolsonaro being elected. Right. The far so right. just to clarify, so it was that not that he was bent; it was their case against Lula right. that made him dis- disqualified him to run for office. He was also in jail; he was put in jail. Right. And then Bolsonaro, because of that, because all the polls were showing that Lula was doing really well. Um, Bolsonaro basically became president, won the election because of that. And then, thanks to this investigation by um, Glenn and The Intercept, um, they saw that the prosecution had been kind of in bed with the judge, right? Was it the Yes, and that's the the most substantive things they got were these communications between uh, the judge, Sergio Romo, um, Moro. I'm sorry, Moro, Romo yeah. is the, clo- the former closer for the Tampa Bay Rays. Okay, yeah, Moro. Uh, right. Moro, and basically what they showed is that the the judge was kibitzing with the 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 prosecution, helping them, right. telling, giving them advance notice of, of rulings. Right. So anyway, that happened. Big major expose, uh, and they did great work uh, in doing it. They were very careful legally. Yeah. 
because it's complicated. You know, they, they, this is stolen material, sure. so you have to. So, so the government, um, even though they did an investigation last year and concluded that that there was no uh, evidence of of a crime, uh, they've they kind of turned around and Glenn was charged ostensibly with being part of an ongoing criminal scheme. So he's charged with like all 126 felonies or whatever it is. You know, it's it's a serious thing. Yeah. I mean, he could end up, he's not incarcerated now. I talked to him Wednesday. He was taking a walk on a farm. He's fine yeah. now. Uh, but the you know, from the moment it goes before a judge, if a judge doesn't throw it out, which is possible, um, you know, he's at risk of being incarcerated. Yeah. Uh, and you know, there's there's a lot of angles to this that are really unpleasant. Yeah. So people know what the issue is. The what they're saying is that when he talked, when Glenn talked to the source uh, who came to them, who had already gotten all the material before right. they contacted Glenn or the Intercept, so that you can't claim that they were part of uh, any right. It wasn't scheme on behalf steal, of the, right. Yeah. Right. It was already done by that point. Uh, but they talked, and the person asked for advice. You know, should I destroy X files? Should I maintain a record of my right. communications with you? Blah, blah, blah. And Glenn, being very careful, said, you know, I can't advise you one way or the other. Like, it's, it would be inappropriate for me to advise you. And they took that, they took that non-act and turned it into an implicit exaggeration uh, or implicit, implicit encouragement to criminal conspiracy. Okay. Because so he didn't say no, what it, no, like he didn't say erase I, those things, give them back. Yeah, I don't know what they would have wanted him to say. There and there's that plus the fact that during the time period they were communicating these hackers were you know, were trying to penetrate other targets ir right. that irrelevant to this story. So that's that's the argument, but the problem is and, and you know, legally it's a very thin read. But, you know, as Glenn said, when I talked to him, uh, you know, does the law even matter in this right. country? Right. So yeah. that's not really the issue. This, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. And they really dislike Glenn Greenwald. The oh, they president hate him. Yeah. hates him. The, I mean, he exposed all their because then the, the issue with with the with the intercept investigation is that 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 prosecutor was it the prosecutor or the judge who became like the, the highest judge who became like the supreme justice justice official okay the judge became a supreme justice official mm -hmm. so um, he exposed that also as a result of uh, the investigation Lula was freed right basically so the president who is incarcerated is now out of jail right. which is great and in case people missed this for whatever reason cuz you shouldn't have cuz you're addicted to useful idiots but on the last episode we did talk to Glenn about this and he summarized yep. it and you know the, the other so thing scary. I think that people are going to be curious about uh, and I asked him about this why not just leave yeah right? I, I kept wanting to ask him about that if he for I, that was before this I just meant for his own safety and his family's yeah, safety. yeah. I mean you know if you if you didn't catch it in the interview that we did with him he hasn't been outside of his home without armed guards right. since like June yeah uh, you know, every aspect of his life has, in, has been impacted. His two kids have been very impacted by this. Right. You know, his husband, David Miranda, has been very impacted by this. And, you know, for me, uh, you know, cowardice in this situation would be a virtue. Like, you know, I would be packing my family yeah. up and leaving at the first hand of it, you know. Yeah. But, um, but he doesn't feel that way. He's got a bit of an unusual take on it. Um, he loves Brazil. He's uh -huh. been there for 15 years. He's, you know, it's his adopted country. Right. And he has been 
I think in some ways even more aggressive in opposing Bolsonaro than he might be, might have been at home. And in a way, I think he sees that as he was showing people that you don't have to be afraid. Right. Uh, you know, they right. have this kind of uh, They're an tradition of being who's married that has two yeah. kids. Also, we talked about that last time. Like he's pushing back against the idea that you can't be happy out gay couple and they're a public gay couple and they have sons and they're a happy family and yeah exactly exactly so i think he feels that it would be um a, a huge betrayal if he were to leave at this point uh you know what, what, he, what he said was you know i can't just uh flee and leave it to people who have you know less resources than right. i do he does have a high profile and some ac- and access right that others don't so yeah so he's committed to kind of sticking this out no matter what happens he also i think you know another angle that i think people don't think about is um okay let's say he came home uh, you know he, he said theoretically he could be extradited back the united states government doesn't love him right yeah. um you know, it's not clear where where no, he'd be he able go. to go. Russia, right? You think the yeah, Russia, yeah. Hang out in uh, with with Snowden and Zagorsk yeah. or wherever he, wherever he lived. So you know, that's an interesting question. He, but he's you know he could he leave now though? When you're allowed to leave when you well, you can always break the law and leave. I mean, he's he's not right. in car- he's fleeing, not in custody though, right, right now. Would he be fleeing? He would be. Yeah, okay. yeah. Uh, but he he has no intention of doing that. Doesn't sound like, and yeah. he sounds he sounds kind of like comfortable with his decision. It's crazy. It is true that having a higher profile person with access and reach, and connections does in a way have like a residual effect on the rest of the society because if he's exposing this stuff in a way that he wouldn't be not living there. I mean, he would be. I'm sure if he did leave, he'd be writing about it, talking about it. But it does kind of like keep a focus on them. Yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah. It adds gravitas to the right. reporting, too. But, you know, I don't know. I mean, he says it's not just about the journalism for me. You know, it's, it's my country. It's my life. It's my family. Right. I, have, I have Brazilian kids. I have a Brazilian husband. Right. So, who's a politician? Who's a congressman? He's a like, member of elected member of Congress. Yeah. Um, who replaced another person who, who was LGBTQ, also who fled out of fear for his own life. Right. And uh, another thing I thought was interesting that he, that he talked about um, there are some people who are trying to draw a distinction between this case and the Assange case. Yeah. Like, there are some press right. critics who are saying, oh, well, Assange actually did help Chelsea Manning, you know, try to hack uh, and ob- obtain those files from the army. Uh, but Glenn is in- innocent, so this is a different kind of press freedom case. Glenn, mm-hmm. you know, on Wednesday, totally quashed that. He's like, this is exactly this is uh, similar. His position has always been that that Assange was merely helping Manning uh, protect her identity and evade detection, which is something reporters do all the time. Right. Like if you know if somebody calls you and you say, for instance, um, maybe we shouldn't talk on an open line. Right. Uh, maybe we should meet somewhere else. Safety. You You're know, just don't advising safety. Right. Be careful yeah. when you talk to your your right. coworkers. Like that's kind of in the same so he takes that position and then he he took a a step further and he said he thinks that because bolsonaro and trump are buddy buddy that uh, bolsonaro might have actually gotten some inspiration to to make this move uh from seeing their indictment of assange he's saying well if 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 they can make such a thin case against assange why can't i do the same thing here and so just for, for people who might think that there's a distinction there 
Planet that, is saying there isn't. Yeah, it's ex- right. it's exactly the same problem that's been a problem for a while. That that which is that the governments are more worried than ever about secrets. Yeah. So they are expanding the definition a of what's classified, and then they're also trying to dis- expand the definition of what theft is. Yeah. By saying that you know advising a source is part of the conspiracy right. to steal, and so we're gonna we're gonna rope you into that, and that makes everybody not want to do the reporting and this is a classic example of that isn't isn't um glenn's source a whistleblower well okay so not really i mean i guess you could argue like one argument which is one that kiriaku made john kiriaku made with us is that uh illegalities cannot be secret legally right Right. That's a principle in America. Like you can't classify yeah. something that's breaking the law. So if you're bringing something forward, yeah, you're that's shining illegal, a light on something, right? Uh, then you're shining light on it. But you know, these guys didn't. They weren't like workers in in the justice ministry. Sure. They're not like internal people coming forward with. Right. You know, they were. They got it through other means. So. Oh, so that right. So that just changes it. So to be a whistleblower, you have to like be within that institution and bringing it I out. I think kind that of? typically that's the yeah. definition. Yeah. But it doesn't make it any more. You could argue it's equally moral, right? Well, from a reporting point of view, it's not really different. Right. I mean, the the, the issue is, um, you know, the courts in in this country um, have upheld that it's legal uh, to publish uh, material that was obtained through theft. There was a a case involving uh, some people who stole, you know, transmissions, like phone calls. Bartnicki v. Vopper is the Supreme Court case. Says that you can publish, you're... Journalists are allowed to publish things that are right. stolen. That's in America. Uh, so that's a principle. Right. It's kind of, you know, people publish things that are stolen all the time. And in this case, it's a little different because, you know, they weren't working within the right. institution, but you still, it it's still relevant. Yeah, so. right. It's still doing, it's still theft in order to expose an illegality. Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> I wanted to pretend me. I was like in a court, in a, in like a judge or a. Anyway, so that happens. We'll talk to him again as, as we get closer yes, to the, the next thing is when they, when they go before a judge. But for yeah, now, he's really okay. Scary. But you know, I think it's uh, you know it's it's, an, it's another major kind of press freedom case. And, yeah. Uh, so I wonder if there's anything. I was trying to see if there's anything online to, that you can we can people can do to support Glenn Greenwald. But I, I mean, they're good. They're going. They're, they're going to be petitions. Yeah. All the relevant press freedom yeah. organizations are, are, you know, yeah. already rallying behind them. We'll use the uh, use. This is not. It sounds like I'm being. We'll use um, useful idiots pod hashtag to link to anything that comes up that absolutely. you can do for for Glenn. Great. One last funny note about this: if you if you read Glenn's uh, Twitter feed, mm-hmm. um, he was trashing the New York Times editorial page yeah. as recently as Monday or Tuesday because of their endorsement yeah. of uh, of Warren and Klobuchar yeah. and some other things. Yeah. Uh, but then they came out with a very strong editorial in support of him. Yeah. And so he t- he was laughing about this, and he turned it right around and said, "Look, great New York Times! What an yeah, am- what an amazing funny. editorial page right. they have." Anyway, so that's our update. We got a Panther update, and we got a Glenn update, and yeah. one's more serious than the other. And again, we'll just we'll we'll, we'll give you uh, we'll be talking to him throughout yeah. this process, so uh, we'll keep you informed. Yeah. We have a great show. Great We're going show. to be talking to uh, the coos con- is loose. The coos, uh, Congressman Dennis Kucinich, who um, ran for president in 2004-2008. Super interesting guy. Yeah. Incredible, bizarre background. Survived three assassination attempts. Uh, talks about all kinds of interesting stuff. Yeah. Uh, and then we have uh, an amazing, uh, another crazy week in American politics that we're going yeah. to be talking about. Uh, and. The craziest thing of all, the most important development, is that we are going to soon be providing you guys with... Merch. Merch. 
In fact, we have a new, we have Useful Idiots merchandise that's going to be coming up. But we want to actually appeal to the audience yeah, and want, ask yeah. you what you think the best and most ridiculous uh, merch line that we should develop right. would be. The most useful, useful idiot line. Useful, right. useful idiots line, yeah. Right. I mean, One. we're going to do probably the obvious, obvious you know, mugs, m- mugs, hats. mugs, hats, that sort of thing. But, you know, something a little weirder, you know, and a- aprons, Ap- Oh, we onesies. need aprons. Definitely need onesies so that people can have right. their kids and useful idiots. But even things. more ridiculous than that. Like, we want we want you to, you know, tw- tweet yeah, us for something. You have, you have something very bizarre we want to know about it. This wouldn't be bizarre, but it'd be good to have, um, what are the things that you, coasters? For coasters, right? I mean, coasters, yeah. Flasks for the drinking games. If we do, right? That I'm thinking something more like you know, like a radar guided anti aircraft missile. Yeah, or that too. Like that was going to be next on my on my list, right along with um, the equally um, ambitious like temporary tattoos. Those are good. Yeah, yeah, I like those a lot. Yeah. Actually, that would be kind of interesting. It would be right. Yeah. All right. Uh, food, four food groups. Yeah, four uh, food groups. Let's only go. four four news stories in the world. Republicans suck. Democrats suck. Isn't that weird? Isn't that terrible? We should we start with Democrats suck this sure. week? Yeah. Uh, we got a good one that just that literally just happened. Uh, there is a news story. Um, Hulu is coming out with a documentary called Hillary and Hillary Clinton. I should just step back. I I personally don't want useful idiots as a show to be so Bernie centric. It's not something that I right. I personally would like. But the news is just moving us in this direction. Well, Every week there's something crazier and crazier. And Hillary now in this interview they're giving little little previews of what she's saying. And you know, the headline is, nobody likes him. She's talking about, about, Bernie, about yeah. Bernie. Nobody likes him. Nobody wants to work with him. Uh, he doesn't get anything done. And the one that really that was amazing to me, that was the most amazing, is he's a career politician. I mean... Are you kidding me? Yeah. It's <laughs> The projection is real. Like, the projection <laughs> is so real. Nobody likes Freud him. Say? No, nobody. I know. We should. I mean, I tweeted about some of these things today. I was like... Nobody likes him. And then I put these photos of her rallies and his rallies side by side. And right. it's just like, you can't make it up. Right. Like, you might as well be like, he's married to a, a, a politician who has been, a former president who has been accused of sexual uh, assault by, right. by many people. He it's was like, a, he was with, a no, mor- morally ambiguous corporate lawyer. Yeah, who, yeah exactly. Right. I mean, like, are you... It's, like, really? Yeah. I, I, I almost, part of me almost thinks that that Hillary Clinton is... is way more astute about the media than we give her credit for and this is she's playing the villain card as some kind of marketing strategy yeah well you said when she was on Howard Stern you said like you almost respected her because it was like yeah I was starting to enjoy it yeah she's she's throwing it in everybody's face but now I'm almost thinking that it's it's a level beyond that that she's she's trolling like in a in a almost like a Trumpian fashion yeah maybe I I can't other there's no other thing that I can that would explain it you know, she's being so. Vindictive. She's a she's a politician. She is a politician, and and she knows what you can and cannot say, right. and she's just she's just stomping on that uh, yeah. with reckless abandon in a way that's almost kind of entertaining. Do you think Don't she's you think? pulling out? She's showing us how how wretched she is, so that people will be less disgusted by the other Dems besides Bernie. Uh, that's. That's interesting. That's, I think uh, I'm probably thinking of that from my perspective too much, though, because I don't think I'm her demographic that she's trying to reach out to. Well, that's sort of the reverse uh, psychology strategy. Remember when um, you, know, you don't you probably well, yes, you would remember this. So when uh, George H.W. Bush nominated Dan Quayle. Yeah. 
potato uh, uh, speller. Yeah, but who couldn't sell potato. And a lot of people thought, okay, he picks somebody who's so dumb that it right. makes Bush look not so bad. Right. And I think there's there might have been mm, something to right, that, yeah. actually. Right? Yeah, I mean, if I were anyone besides Bernie, I'd be like, Hillary, can you get out there again so people can have like a right? lower... Yeah. Yeah. No. Bigger, please, yeah. Biden. I'd vote for him eight times. Yeah. Exactly. Now, right? like, I'm gonna go volunteer. I'm gonna do 22 day, 22 reasons or whatever day we're on. 20 reasons, 17 <laughs> reasons. Joe Biden. I'm gonna make. We should do one of those where we go back and forth for him. By the way. Uh, yeah. You yeah. Think? We should do one for Hillary. That's Why not a bad idea. Away. I guess she should stay out. I don't know. It makes me as a Bernie person just like wow, more opportunities to to remind people of what a an ungrateful and there's nothing misogynist or sexist about this. And this as a feminist, I just want to say something. There are many, I'm not saying how many genders there are, but traditionally, most of, almost all politicians fall into one of two genders, right? And historically. And politicians are calculating people. That means that sometimes women who are politicians are going to be calculating, and I'm not gonna pretend that someone, because she's a woman, is not calculating. So, especially when she's so incredibly calculating. Right. But I feel like people really weaponize this stuff, like you can't say someone's calculating because she's a woman. It's like, no, she's a politician. She's going to be calculating, and she happens to be a woman. And it's actually sexist to pretend a woman can't be calculating. That's true. That's true. So if you're a feminist, call Hillary Clinton. Calculating? Calculating. Huh. I mean, that's me being diplomatic. That's you. That's I never use, like, like... Yeah, I'd like no, to peer into what your actual thoughts are. I don't use problematic words. I just use more, like, sociopath. I right. mean, if I were not being as, as uh, diplomatic, I would say sociopathic. Remember Abby Martin was on, and I and I re- we read what she had said about Tulsi Gabbard. Mm-hmm. And Abby, just, like, very seriously, not joking, she's like, it's just, yeah, it's just a narcissistic personality disorder. Very seriously said it, which made me laugh really hard. The only problem with that is that's a blanket diagnosis that you could give to basically anybody uh, who's ever run for it's president. True, right. And also, so. we don't want to get... Right, and, and it, this is weirder. It's not just that. And I don't also don't want to give her an excuse like I'm not going to diagnose her also I have no way to do that I'm not a doctor or a psychologist but also I don't want people to think that she has no choice and she's I'm not pathologizing her I'm trying to vilify her not pathologize her and I want to make that very clear well for I'm not pathologizing her because I I want to encourage it. I think it's, yeah, it's incredibly right. entertaining. We're, I'm a fangirl, she, former just, hater, current she's fan gotta, girl. She's got to do more. Like, I think she should come out, like, with, you know, in a gigantic sort of leather costume with skulls on yeah. it and stuff like that. Just Bernie's, completely. With Bernie's skulls? Yeah, yeah, With skulls exactly. with the white hair coming around it? Yeah, it would just be fantastic. Like, she's 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 on the verge of becoming that kind of character. She's like the... She's the worst. Yeah, it's, it's she's awesome. She's the worst. She's the best, the worst. You know, and, and this is something that happens all the time. It's like every time I think that Hillary can never do something like this again, that she's already been as, as terrible to, to Bernie Sanders as... As she's she going to be, she, yeah, she she wasn't from Dumb and Dumber. You go ahead and do something like this and totally redeem yourself. So, <laughs> right. Um, so I made this um, when Hillary's um, uh, "What Happened" book came out, which uh-huh. is, as Jimmy Dore says, "What happened?" The answer is the is the author's name. So, uh, <laughs> and I made this, and it's as applicable then as as it is now, or now as it was then. So yeah, I watched. Senator Sanders defending himself from your book, and I'm wondering, why did you reopen a wound in your own party? I don't agree with that. I wanted to tell what happened. I won a landslide victory. I know what it's like to win, and I know what it's like to lose. And when I lost to Barack Obama, I immediately turned around. I endorsed him. You don't buy the party unity argument. 
I don't. Now, my husband did not wrap up the nomination in 1992 until he won the California primary in the middle of June. June. I convinced my supporters to vote for him. We all remember Bobby Kennedy was assassinated in June. <laughs> I didn't get <laughs> the same my respect favorite Hillary from moment. my primary opponent. I move that the convention suspend the procedural rules, and I move that Hillary Clinton be selected as the nominee. Senator Sanders has moved in the spirit of unity. I congratulate her. I intend to do everything I can to make certain she will be the next president. That's just an abbreviated version of it. It's just the, the hypocrisy, the like, the entitlement, the delusional, everything. My, fa my favorite thing is the, is the refrain about how he, he didn't... Uh, he enough. didn't support me earlier, right. early enough. I guess it's because people have a short cultural memory and they don't remember how bitterly contested 2008 was. Right. I mean, that was nobody gave an inch in that campaign until basically until uh, Obama was formally made the nominee. Right. I and, mean, it, yeah. it was it was uh, it was you know in the balance until basically that yeah. moment, and and it was there were there was no love lost between those campaigns at all, and it was uh, I I just. The revisionist history is absurd. Yeah. And you know, interestingly, she's uh, she's asked about whether or not she would theoretically endorse right. a Sanders candidacy, and you know, she she gave this non-committal answer yeah. like we're not there yet. It's you know like. So the answer is no. So right. she's the like Trump enabling purity politics person that all her defenders accuse. And as she's been pointed out, that's an easy question to answer, right? Like the the question yeah. is. If, if you're in a race, you're not going to answer that question, right? Because right. Because you, you, you say, "What are you talking about? I'm going to be the nominee." Yeah. Like that's that's how you answer that question. But if you're not in it, it's, it's the easiest thing in the world is to say, "Well, you know, you know, of I'm course. a Democrat. I'll vote yeah. for whoever the right. Democrat is." Right. You know, and which is better? Okay, better or worse? The the Warren treatment of Sanders? Because I, I have to admit, I kind of there's something badass and like straightforward about how terrible she is to Bernie as Who, a Hillary? Uh, Hillary, totally, as opposed to the like. Well, Bernie called me a liar, and he's sexist, but let's move on from that. Oh, yeah, no, that was good. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> that was good. You, even... got, you got the note just right. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, the, and the head turn. Yeah. yeah, we didn't even get to talk about this last week, and it was painful because he wrote this really good piece. I mean, it was painful. It was like it was like emotional blue balls watching that debate <laughs> and not being able to process it with you. But um, it just kept getting worse and worse. And when I couldn't believe the, the, the moment, and I heard about this from some other people, um, you know who who covered the debate yeah that when abby phillip did that whole thing where she asked oh my when God. she asked sanders to say did you know just to be clear you didn't say that right. he's like no, no right and then she moves to she moves to warren and says uh you know when he said that what did you think when he said that yeah so apparently apparently there were gasps in the press uh room yeah and i'm, I'm not surprised that was a that was a kind of a stunning thing it just yeah. took the mask off the whole oh network. my god it and, was awful and uh, the amazing thing is uh, the the network must know how that plays not just to its Democratic audience but to everybody, right? Right? Because it's going to reinforce every fake news cliche. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It was crazy. It was right? crazy. And then the handshake thing. Oh yeah, that whole thing. That seems. If you're asking the question, well, what's worse? Like that was. That felt really staged Stage, to me. Stage, right? I, mean, I don't know. I See, guess we can't say that because we don't know. But I got it, yeah. tricked because as we've covered in the show, she has a thin skin and gets very frazzled. So we saw her, remember when Amy Goodman asked her a normal question, she lost it and was like, yeah. Like when right. she's like, thank you. She's like, yeah. And then that other clip that you showed where she's like, um, don't 
that face like right, she kind of yeah, loses yeah, yeah. it so i thought oh she just lost it but then i was like no she had a time to go up to him and as everyone probably knows because they they released the audio she was like i think you just called me a liar and well, right i mean you know that that you're, you're being there's no such thing lip, as off, either right you know, or people can read lips yeah. on stage i mean everybody knows that and that's like that's politics 101 is if you don't intend for everybody right. in the world to know it don't say it yeah you know? so she wouldn't shake his hand right and then goes I think you just lied about me on, on national television. And right. he's like, look, you want to talk? Look, let's talk about later. She's like, anytime. Like, anytime. Like, soccer mom, like, fights back or something. I don't even know what it was. It was so nerdy and so pseudo badass. I don't mean I, I, And then he's like, you lied about me. All right, we'll talk about it later. And then he leaves. <laughs> that's good. And then, thank yeah. you. And he's such a mensch that, like, the first person who asked him what they had said Steyer. on the record. Oh. No, on the record. I forget who it was. He was, they were like, "What'd you talk about?" And uh, when you were, you know, when you guys didn't shake hands, and Bernie Sanders like the weather, <laughs> which is like anyone who doubts he's Jewish, evidence, <laughs> peace number, whatever. It's like such a menschy thing. But I was so. I mean, obviously I like him, but like I was so disgusted by that. Yeah. Like, how dare you? Right. I don't know. I. I, I well, all, Believe I'll women, say is I, I, I suspect that. You know, someday, years from now, we're going to find out about all sorts of machinations it's that took awesome. place behind the scenes right. with the with the Democratic Party. You know, th- 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 there's just too much weirdness going on with this. And, that, um, and you've seen the Believe Women thing, right? Oh, Which yeah. Which is a no, whole other episode. Yeah, but just yeah. very short PSA. The term Believe Women and Me Too is not intended to describe um, non-sexual political discussions between two equally powerful people. Right. So you can just stop doing that. It's actually right. really offensive and um, belittling. Anyway, so... Moving on. Republicans suck. What do we got? Republicans suck. We got this guy, Rick Wilson, Mm -hmm. one of my faves, who uh, just no holds bars in the way he treats. Again, I like Sanders. I don't we don't mean to talk about him all the time. But like these attacks on him are just so egregious. And um, we got to address them. So here's Rick, uh, Rick Wilson, Republican, part of the online Never Trump resistance who's on um, Brian Williams. Bernie is every cliche the Republicans want to run against. He's a Northeastern liberal. He's 375 years old. He just had a heart attack. He, is, he comes across, he doesn't scan as a president. He scans as an associate professor of poetry at Bennington Community College. He does not come across as the guy you want to have in charge of 7,000 nuclear weapons. Okay, clearly he doesn't know his Vermont colleges. Bernie is not a Bennington professor, yeah. but ben- Bennington professors are are for waspy. the ultra wealthy waspy. Yeah, yeah, uh, he's a CUNY professor. Bernie's a CUNY professor. Yeah, thanks, like Rick. I, I get you the professorial a, thing. Yeah, but, I know you're so yeah, dumb. Yeah. But I want to give him I want to give him a shout out because the guy you can hear his apnea in the way he speaks, Rick Wilson, <laughs> and I want to give him a shout out for owning that and still feeling comfortable calling Bernie Sanders old. Right. I guarantee you Bernie Sanders could literally run laps around him and beat him at a game of basketball. I, I should I should cop to the fact that, uh, if I'm not mistaken, we should fact check this, but Wilson actually said one of the funniest things in 2016. He said that Trump supporters were all childless single males who masturbate to anime. Oh, I think he did say something like that. Should <laughs> yeah, we, which, yeah. Which is we funny, actually. That. He also um, asked Ann Coulter on Twitter if, tra- if she charges more for anal if trump charges more for anal oh my goodness that's yeah that's again i don't want to make this show all about bernie but the, the msnbc bring, well let's bring, make it bring, about bring how ridiculous it is that this guy is a republican he's on all the time and how cloying it was to hear um brian williams say you're a patriot i know yeah yeah exactly you're europe can you he's tell like, me can you tell me about how much uh, of a patriot you are <laughs> like uh, and he's like look i mean i'm i don't as as, as unsentimental as i am i'm a patriot you know brian as I think I've demonstrated over the last couple of years, 
my political preferences and my ideological predicates don't matter in the face of a guy who could destroy our country and is rapidly working to do so. Because you're a patriot. I am. Uh, you know what? As unsentimental as I am, I'm a patriot first. But look, it's so gross. It's not like it's breaking character. Like, you know, this guy, Bill Crystal, David Frum, these, these are the heroes of the party yeah, now. I so I don't know. Whatever. It's David it's, Frum is at least like I really don't like him, but he seems intelligent. This guy just seems... Oh, and it's like a weird From his love. smart. Like he's, he's yeah, he is. Some, That's he's, what I'm saying. This guy, Rick Wilson, is like I don't agree he's with Brian him, Williams. Of yeah. the, they should have a show together called like Really Dumb. And re- and then I love that Brian Williams, I don't know if you noticed this, he, put, he puts on his glasses to try to look smart. And he calls Messina um, Donald Trump's 2012 campaign right, manager. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Freudian slip. Because remember, Messina embraced... Yeah, rejoiced when Donald Trump won. Oh, right. Yes, the the Pied Piper thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Right, right, right. Isn't that weird? I I just had to go back to Sri Lanka. You got to go. You're a nationalist. You're becoming a... And I felt like I I slandered Sri Lanka a little bit last week because I said that the person, whoever that was who was smuggling the scorpions, was probably... had had probably met to an untimely end. I don't know that. So the the story here is an extinct animal is no longer extinct. That's wonderful. There is a black leopard... Uh, the, the Sri Lankan black leopard, which was uh, presumed to, to have no longer existed to the point where uh, the corpses of three black leopards had been posed in a, in a museum right. wow. in Sri Lanka as these are, these are the last yeah. ones that we found. But they had one of those cameras that, that's set up so that it takes pictures when something walks by. Yeah. And it took a picture of the, of the leopard. And so and it exists. Back. Right. Can you read the headline, by the way? I think you're, I want to make people sure people hear it. Sri Lankan black leopard not extinct, semicolon, spotted again. Spotted. spotted. Yeah, yeah. Oh, come on. It I mean, has to probably be it does have spots underneath the, the black, right? Oh, weird. Anyway, good well, news, right? So it's great news. It's like a, the coelacanth story, right? Remember the, they thought that was a prehistoric fish no longer oh, existed. No. The guy goes fishing, catches it. It's awesome. Well, these things are looking good because a tortoise just um, like gave birth to eight, not not gave birth to what? Did you see this? A tortoise like fathered like 80,000 turtles. I'm not making it up. Can someone look for this? Look at that face. Could you say no? How could anyone resist him? This playboy tortoise had so much sex, he saved his entire species. Now he's going home. Well, he's like, and he's I love, I love like a hundred. Headline. Too. Yeah, I know. You know, he got, has a lot of age in that neck, that tortoise. That's an excellent neck. It's a Biden neck. Oh, my God. It is a Biden yeah. neck. Yeah. I wonder if he says really problematic things about other tortoises and their, the way they look. Like, listen, fat. <laughs> L- listen, <laughs> slow poke. Listen, slow. Yeah. <laughs> All right. What do we have All for right, terrible? So it's terrible. Um, uh, we have a story. It happens to the worst of us. It happens to the best of us. Um, man suffers three-day erection after taking sexual stimulant used to breed balls. <laughs> so this is a case that happened in, um, I think he was from Mexico. He traveled to Veracruz in Mexico, in East Mexico, to um, buy this stimulant. And the, you know these articles that don't have a lot of information? This was in the Daily Mirror. So they emphasize these weird things, like in order to have sex with a 30-year-old woman. Like what's his, they how just old have is to, he? I don't know. We don't know how old he is, but clearly somehow they know the her age and not his age or something. So right. they're just trying to jam pack it with them. Um, so yeah, a man had to be rushed to the hospital after uh, after taking a stimulant used for breeding bulls that left him with three day erection. The man in Mexico whose name is unknown is believed to have taken the stimulant as he excitedly planned to have sex with a thirty year old woman. However, he ended up needing surgery to tackle the persistent engorgement at Specialist Hospital. Specialist Hospital 270, which in Reynosa, a city in 
on the U.S.-Mexico border, La Republica reports. Yeah, and doctors told the newspaper he had taken a sexual stimulant, which he had bought in Veracruz, used by farmers in that region to invigorate bulls for insemin- insemination. Used oh, with- this is the guy. Yeah, this has been this has happened before, um, but not from this. There was just another case of a guy with a long-lasting erection who had to have surgery on it. It's which it sounds like a Darwin Award story. Right. I mean, yes. the only the only thing that didn't happen is that the guy didn't the entire body didn't explode. Yeah, oh, right, exactly. Yeah. Like, you know, it would have. You know, you, you said that you're the Rodman of um, I was Mongolia. The Mongolian Rodman, Do you know yes. he had a couple of penis breaks? No. Yeah. Apparently, been, he's like broken his penis three times, Dennis Rodman. He's broken his penis. I didn't even know you could really do that. Well, I guess you're not really the Mongolian Rodman. I guess not. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Lucky no, that's terrible. You. That's yeah. terrible. Um, I don't know what I can say about that story that would be appropriate. Hard to top that. Hard. Just the top. Just the tip. Sorry. Um, <laughs> all right. So. All right. Cool. What should we go next? We got we got so much to talk about. We got the Times endorsement. We do. I guess we should should we start with the the New York Times endorsement? Yeah. So, the the New York Times did something that was. Um, that was, I would say, unprecedented and bizarre. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they did this whole process, like this made-for-TV process, to discuss how they were going to arrive at the decision of whom to endorse in the Democratic primary. And they did these elaborate interviews, they were filmed, and then they finally do the endorsement. And it's a 3,500, 4,000-word article where they don't make a decision they chose oh, right they they, they decided to endorse both amy klobuchar and elizabeth warren and uh and the the logic was just in, in incredibly convoluted so basically what they say is and this is interesting because it's the first time it's really been i think expressed in in major news media they say accurately that there are really three big choices in american politics now there's kind of the the, the trumpian vision there's the progressive sort of uh, transformative vision uh, articulated by Sanders, and then there's the traditionalist approach. And what they say is, okay, there are three visions. We're going to not choose between two of them. And of the two that we're going to choose, we're going to only pick the two that are best argued in our opinion. Uh, And that's how they arrived at this crazy decision between Warren and and Klobuchar, which just, it it was nuts. I don't know what to say. Well, it's it's really a bad thing for Warren, I think, for a couple of reasons. Mm -hmm. One is, like, she does try to play it like she's a progressive. And this is kind of like, you're with, like, the woman who... Besides abusing her staff, which we joke about a lot, but it's actually quite serious. Like, mm-hmm. she does throw staplers at her staff. And the New York Times itself reported on it. And they had, like, some throwaway line where they kind of acknowledge that, but it's not that big of a deal. Right. You'd think it would be kind of a big deal. I mean, you'd think they go with one of the, the candidates who has, does not have a documented history of throwing objects at their subordinates. But it's pretty bad for Warren because Klobuchar is such a, a kind of an un- an avowed um, centrist like that's almost her thing that's what she runs on and so being in the same camp with her for Warren who pretends to be this person who's like you know Bernie Light transformative transformative yeah yeah, is not very good Um, also I think it's a little offensive like what is the tie that binds they're both women like, is this just some weird... Well, they weren't trying to say that there was a tie, to, tie that binds, though. But why is this... No, I know, I know, but, like, why those two? Because they're both... Well, what do they have in common? I mean, I read it, but it didn't make sense. And their, and their characterization of Sanders was, of course, really stupid. And they did that whole, like, swapping in one extremism for another, which, again, you're just telling us that, like, Sanders could actually defeat Trump. So just to, as background on this whole process that the Times did, so they... 
not only is this they they ended up doing a special podcast, and I think at some point we should listen to oh, yeah. it because they 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 did a whole regal. Uh, rollout of how they arrived at the sacred process of the yeah. endorsement. Uh, but even better than that, look, they have this um, caption on e- at the heads of each of the interview stories, and this is what it says. The editorial board is a group of opinion journalists whose views are informed by expertise, research, debate, and certain long-standing values. Just the pomposity of that yeah. is awesome. Can, like, I, can you say to me, uh, I have certain long-standing yeah, values. I have certain long-standing values. <laughs> I mean, how do you not feel ridiculous well, it's the attaching humility yourself to that? Also, of it, right? Like, I have certain long-standing values. Right. Like, I'm not a, hun- a saint, but I have certain. Like, I'd rather they actually just said an, an upstanding values. <laughs> yeah. What is this? This measured? Yeah. It's just the, so the, you know. Then then they asked these these completely crazy. This this was the one where they asked Sanders like, oh how, how can people feel secure that um, you're not going to be Trump, if you are flying around on airplanes and addressing large crowds, if yeah. you you know, and but whatever the, the 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 point is, they they are celebrating their the extreme awesomeness right. and and, and uh, you know and weight uh, of this process, and then they they just completely punt on it in the end, which is just it's, it's right. hilarious. It's hilarious that Nate Silver called this. By the way, did you see oh, it? Oh no! Wow, good Nate, good on Nate. He pushed. He put out odds. Uh, about who who the whom the, the Times would endorse, and uh, the best odds were for Warren, but at ten to one, he said they endorsed no one or two candidates wow. or something dumb like that. Oh, nice. Which is pretty. Yeah. Pre- I mean, I'm not a fan of, of Nate's work late, but that was that was a pretty yeah. good call. That Great. gave some insight into. Right. In, yeah, into, yeah. Yeah. I wonder how Warren, what Warren thought of it. Well, yeah. Well, how do you feel about it if you're one of these candidates? I, I mean. Warren re- Warren refund hashtag Warren refund. Remember, she should ask for her right money yeah. back. Not that she paid, but um, I flew all the way to uh, New York, and all I got was half of this lousy endorsement. Yeah, exactly. There's so much in the, in this in this piece. The only thing they say about Yang is uh, we hope that we, that he gets involved with New York politics. Like you know, he he did all right. You know, he, he demonstrated some appeal and whatever, and he's got some interesting ideas. We hope he gets involved in New York politics. Like it's he's not so already gross. a national figure. Yeah, I know. Seriously. And, and again, this is this is the times not grasping that in the modern age, probably the Yang, the Yang Gang hashtag has more media reach than yeah. the New York Times is at this point. Yeah. You know, I mean, the the, the condescension is just incredible. Disgusting, yeah. I don't know. To what do you attribute? The, the fascination with the Klobuchar thing, like I, I think that the people who really don't want it to be Bernie are just desperate, and they're hoping that like if they com- throw a bunch of stuff at the uh, what's the expression? The spaghetti at the wall. Yeah, so throw spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks. It's like okay, we're going to take a centrist, we're going to take someone who kind of like pretends to be progressive and is kind of progressive. This woman's been elected a lot of times. She had a midwestern thing up going about her. Like I just think that they're trying to to find the anti Sanders. I'm so I'm, I was a little surprised. Why didn't they go for Pete? He just doesn't have the viability because of his polling with. Yeah, they, their 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 take on Pete was basically you know nice first shot. We hope he 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 stays in the game and maybe right. someday down the line you know well the implication is maybe in the future we'll right. take them more seriously. Yeah. But it's just this institutional media response where they don't get that, you know, back in the day, 2004, 2008, 
the notion of getting an endorsement from this big establishment right. media organ would have would have carried this awesome Sweet. weight with yeah. people. But it doesn't anymore, and it, and it hasn't for a while. Yeah. But they don't they don't know it. They're, they're like what what they're expressing with this is that they don't they don't know how they're perceived. Right. You know, and I think that was amazing. Okay. Well, congrats. What else have we got? Let's oh, see okay, what the body language. Oh my god. Again. We don't want to do the. We don't. We don't want to be. Wanna I mean, this. okay. I probably do. I'm a stand. I'm a Bernie do. stand, no matter what. But like, I don't have to argue for a lot of Bernie coverage because it's just built into it. Because we have to issue corrective behavior. We have to, you know, compensate. Right. He's under attack by basically every. Even if you don't like him. Now I love him. You like him. I'm not pretending you dislike him. But like, it's just fair game for media analysis because it's so relentless. So here's Joy Reid. Joanne Reid, friend of the show. Not, I mean, I would like, she can come, we, we'd host her. Come on, Joanne. We would, yeah, yeah, of course. Friend of the show, who used to remember. She wouldn't she, in a million years appear in the show. I know, well, you never know. Like, so let's watch um, Joanne Reed, who once was very rational and actually called Sanders like the clarion moral voice of the Democratic Party before she started describing him as, as, as similar to your college roommate who doesn't pay rent and sleeps on your couch. Um, so let's watch what, how Joanne Reed wants to get to the bottom of this he said, she said dust up between the two of them is that scandals m hurt you more when they seem plausible right? right i mean bernie sanders does have a sort of physicality you know when he when he talks that yes. is a shaking your finger yes. at hillary clinton yes. shaking your finger shovey weirdy, weirdy. You know, his, his physicality yes. makes me think yeah he could have said you know listen i think in this environment a woman can't win that doesn't seem like a crazy well first of all i think it, i think bernie's lying we see him he slouches forward anyway joy but here he turtles if you look at his eye turtles. level where he normally when he makes the denial, his whole shoulders come up like a little kid getting caught. His eye level is below his shoulders. This is trying to hide in plain sight. And many of us, we don't know what to look for. So if you look for this right out of the gate, and the strongest denial is simply saying no. And I think women in particular, we want to believe human beings. Mm. So we're like, yeah, I would, I would say that. He literally said, well, as a matter of fact, I didn't say it. That's nine words. Unnecessary. No. Did you vote for Donald Trump in the last election? Absolutely no. <laughs> right? So, no. Did you dress up as an Easter money on Easter? Absolutely no. Right? So, it's no. We say no. Absolutely is actually not the strongest denial. You're, you're playing with me here in the game, but at least you're getting no, the no in here. We're not totally hearing funny. the no with Bernie. Also, with Bernie, he has numerous hotspots. He says, well. Mm -hmm. Liars like to start with, well. He looks mm -hmm. away. He laughs. I think he might have been coached to laugh in this moment. A lot of politicians are coached to laugh in the difficult times, so we're focused on the laughter, and, and it's supposed to send a message that this isn't serious. It is serious. If he said it, which I believe that he did, he would have been better to just own it. Uh, you know, Barack Obama wrote a book years ago, years ago, and he said what in the book? He tried cocaine and marijuana, and he never touched the stuff again. We never talked about it when he was president after that. If Bernie just owned it, this would disappear. We wouldn't be talking about it six days later. But Bernie, he did the opposite. He is the I want to say a couple things. First of all, do we have a quote from, from uh, Joanne Reed where she denied something? Because I want to see how well Joanne Reed's statement measures up to these the criteria. Do you remember when she was accused of saying homophobic, of tweeting homophobic things, and then actually she said she hadn't, and then they were found, and she said that they were like, she was hacked by Russians. Of course. So she, here's how what she said. She didn't say no, I didn't do that. She said now that the site has been compromised, I can say unequivocally that it does not represent the original entries. I hope that whoever corrupted the site recognizes the pain they've caused, not just to me, but to my family and communities that I care deeply about, LGBTQ, immigrants, people of color, and other marginalized groups. Why so many words? That's a lot of words. That's, that's a lot like, of words. That's like 37 words. Yeah. I don't know how many words Why that is. Why didn't she just say no, I was hacked? Yeah. I mean, it's ridiculous. There's, there's two things about that. 
Number one, in the debate, he uh, did say no. First yeah, of Abby all. Phillip at, one, at the end, she says, "Just to be clear, you didn't say it." And he's like, "No, no. right, yeah. yeah." The other thing is that's hilarious about this scene is that this Janine Driver, this uh, yeah. body language expert. Uh, Joy completely screws up what's happening. She, she asks her. Absolutely, she absolutely does, Matt. Yeah, yeah. She 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 gets her to say, "Did you vote for Donald Trump?" And and Reed says, "Absolutely no," or "No, absolutely yeah, right." Absolutely no. And then she does it again because she she wants her to just say no. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and she's like, "All right, you're playing with me." Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, exactly. It's that's just really it's really so funny. Stupid. Also, um, let's look at the her body language. Why is she reaching forward like she's about to tip over and lunge at Joy? And also, let's talk about the anti-Semitic adjacent discourse here. First, there's a lack of coherence. He's, he has a physicality, so we could see him lying. No. You're basically saying you don't like him and you don't like his physicality, which, by the way, it's kind of Jewy. Like, he's very Jewy in his physicality. This is a thing. We do this, especially men. And he doesn't just... I know that for Joanne Reed and all these pseudo Rabbinical is the word they often rabbinical. use. Rabbinical. Yeah. yeah. For all these people who pretend to have politics that extend beyond their own, like, personal lives, they pretend that it's about anything besides, like, microaggressions or symbolism. But Joanne Reed can't even keep it under the... like. She can't even hide how much this is about her own weird identification with Hillary Clinton. Weirdy. Weirdy. Yeah. She's a weirdy. I'm going to yeah. call her a weirdy. And well, why? She, she used it as an adjective. Weir, I know. Weirdy. Didn't she do that with like Russia-y and she, like, like uh, Kremlin-y? She yeah. really likes doing that. But why is she talking about Hillary Clinton? Like, again, because this is all a, a weird thing about 2016. But um, what does the fact that he uses his hands, why does that mean he's a liar? It's like t- such a weird. Well, she's look, basically saying he's. I think he's a misogynist, so I could see him saying that. Let's just put our cards on the table about this. I believe Joanne Reed. Just kidding. Body language analysis is crap science. Oh yeah. Everybody knows it's crap science. Yeah. It's totally meaningless. Even the people who but invented she sounds this. Sounds so smart. Yeah. I forget what it's called. Kinesiology, kinesics, or something like that. I forget what it is. It's uh, the the people who invented this this discipline admit that there there are no core principles to it it's right. it's you know, wholly interpretive which just means it's perfect for modern journalism it's just thing you put somebody on television and you just bullshit about stuff you, you just you just say oh this looks like that and then so it's just a way to talk about how to, to lend weight to something that you want to say anyway without actually having any insight and we should point out that the non-Bernie aspect of this is that yeah. this this technique has a, a long and ugly history already on cable news. Bill O'Reilly oh, yeah. was famous for it. Uh, and it also came up, it's come up a lot in the last three years with people who testify in Congress. Yeah. Uh, it's come up in the Russia story a few times. They do it constantly with Trump. Uh, yeah. And... Like the the joke there is like you don't need body language analysis to know what's going on with Trump most of the time he tells you you know yeah. uh, but do you think that she pitched it to MSNBC she's like look before you say no just think about it really outside the box idea body language analyst I don't know how it works over there with their producers whether they have to go upstairs with ideas or not I mean look it's or only they just one have, show like, it's Bernie so do whatever you want the last thing I, I think it's important to say about this is that. When you do campaign reporting, there's an enormous temptation to try to read into stuff like that yeah. because you just got to fill so much time yeah. and space. So you say, oh, you know, on the stump, this person looks like 
they don't mean it when they yeah, say this, right. or they look really excited when they talk about healthcare, but they don't look excited yeah. when they talk about something else. So, but you can't do that. It's like it's one of those Absolutely laws of, no. of, of, the, of the campaign is like every time you catch yourself doing that, you got to pull back and stop. Yeah. You can't read into things because you just don't know. And and for them to go a step further than this and get an expert in it, uh, right, 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 not it, just doing it in, they're in formalizing house. it. Right, yeah, yeah, it's, it's just not a, just, yeah, it's, just it's not just like a shooting off the hip thing they notice. They're actually reifying it as a science right yeah exactly it's it reminds absurd. me when when she's like you're playing with me it reminds me i've been waiting for guffman um ron and sheila uh fred willard's character he does this thing where he's like oh stop it to porky sinclair <laughs> when they're doing interpretive d- dance oh yeah. right yeah oh. okay so so w- this is kind of a combo of stone moments and dance moments okay that just lend themselves so here let's get started at the top the democratic candidates were in in uh, south carolina on monday for MLK Day, and there's this a bunch of footage, like some kind of viral images, of uh, of Sanders and Steyer. They have a real, uh, real interesting yeah, dy- bromance. Bromance, yeah. And so people are trying to guess what was being said there. Looks like he's like trying to bother Sanders for like an autograph or something. And Sanders is like, all right, enough already. Uh, of course, Steyer was there when when Sanders and Warren when Warren wouldn't shake his hand. Do you remember Steyer right. was there? And he's like, I don't want to get involved, but I just want to say hi, Bernie. Like right, he seems like right, a real right. Bernie fan. But this then it gets really good. I don't know how to describe this dancing, but that. Yeah. <laughs> how would you describe? It? Okay, so they're on stage and Sanders is like clapping his hands. Steyer is doing this like rocking body movement, rocking, <laughs> and, then, and then he does. Oh, that's like, a that fist, is bad. What a is this thing? He does like a fist going round and round, like the whoop. Who was that? Um, yeah, Arsenio whoop, Hall. The whoop, yeah. the whoop thing. Yeah. And there's a woman, but Sanders looking pretty good. So that one's pretty good. But then let's look. There's another one that's even better. Like oh yeah, I like the pelvic now, thrust. Now the pelvic there. thrust, the hand in the pocket, but now he's really rocking it. <laughs> that is now fantastic. Now he's doing like a. How would you describe that? I don't know, but it's he's like uh, a fist pound up in the in the air, and he. Uh, it's very Deuce Bigelow. Yeah, it's kind of great though. Yeah, exactly. Um, Just don't dance in that situation. Yeah. Well, it's I, although endearing. I guess, what do you do? I know. Yeah, you think? I don't know. Yeah, I think it's endearing. I I kind of like him, and then. I um, can't dance, so I mean, okay, I, that's, so you, that's why so I, I, I just you? won't. Yeah, it does, totally. So in terms of dancing, there are some other dancing clips uh, making the rounds, or rhythm clips. So um, Andrew Yang, uh, Andrew and Yang was Waterloo. in Waterloo, and he's at a church. It looks like he's at a black church, and he's wearing the the robes. That, right, that the, the coral the robes. The coral yeah. robes. So, so it's kind of interesting if you, like, pan. It's an interesting pan that happens, and you see some people singing, and then it goes over, and you see, lo and behold, Andrew Yang is there. And he's clapping on the beat, um, on the two and four, I believe. Jesus said, if you on me, there you go. It's good, right? It's good rhythm. That's that's impressive. He's good, right? He's he's in, he's on time. Yeah, he's got he's yeah he's on time. He's in rhythm. And then we have. Um, that, that, by the way. Andrew Yang has a lot of he has a lot of physicality to his yeah, stunt does, performance. Yeah. He like he runs onto the yep. stage and everything. Like he he, he he brings a lot of energy to his to his campaigning, oh, yeah. which is which is uh, interesting. Yeah. So that that's that's very much in his favor. That's very much yeah. And then we don't want to be called uh, uh, sexist. So uh, let's let's see. Should we watch Warren in Brooklyn? This is a couple seconds. This is great. Okay, this is like she's. She's, I feel so bad. She's so uncomfortable on stage. And, like, it was just a rally that happened, right? Mm-hmm. After Suleimani died, I think. Um, R.I.P. Uh, and she's like, I've been in this situation. You don't really, 
you're you're almost making it into a joke like ha 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 I'm gonna do these really funny over the top dance yeah. moves so she does like a hula dance move and like her yeah you're dance trapped moves. in like this irony chasm yeah exactly right? and you don't there's no way out like you yeah. you either have to like go full fledged and dance or just don't do it but then right. when you're in the middle you're just a dead duck yeah, yeah. dead duck speaking yeah. of Amy Klobuchar <laughs> um, and then the last thing really quickly is let's just watch Warren at Pride because she really wilds out here. She looks like a, uh, <laughs> uh, what is she? She looks like she's a runner. She's running. Look at her, the high fives. She's walking around. Look at that, her and, uh, and uh, Melissa Etheridge. She just looks like she's a runner. She looks like a runner wearing a rainbow boa. And by the way, she is wearing a rainbow boa. And she's running and hugging people and... Uh, oh, it's kind of related. It's her. Right? Oh, it's see? that. It's the Liz Holio. Oh, wait, yeah. what was that? It's Hold on. Can we just see that again? This one's great. She's doing like a we're not worthy almost. Yeah, no. It's, She's like bending up, bending forward. It's a Liz Holio it's into a, Liz a we're Holio. not worthy. Look, she's Liz Holio right? again. But then she's like bending. Yeah. So Liz Holio is basically when, you're, when your hands are up in the air and your elbows I am are. Liz Holio. Yeah, and your elbows are bent. Yeah. Yeah, that's like the, that's, that's, that's the, that's like the Beavis Pit yeah, pose. Be, yeah. I feel like we should just say, I should just say that if either of us had to run for president, it would be infinitely more embarrassing. No, it wouldn't be. You've never seen me dance. That's true. I haven't seen you dance. I mean, running, it's not a good look. I would be embarrassing running yeah. for president. Yeah, yeah. It would be terrible. So I think I can dance better than war. Okay, maybe I'm at like Yang level. You think you're at Yang level? Yeah. But I... Are you in time? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yes. All right. Excellent. Yeah. All right. So that uh, that was great. That was let's great, yeah. let's talk to uh, Dennis Kucinich, yeah. uh, who ran for president uh, 2004, 2008, whose views are now uh, becoming mainstream yeah. and is a really interesting figure who has a lot of insight into this race. Yeah. By the way, we tried very hard to do video with uh, Congressman Kucinich. It didn't work out. And we, we should we should thank him for his patience. Of we course, went through yeah. it like eight different times yeah. trying to make it work. Didn't work. And we apologize. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks to both of you for the invitation to be on this podcast. I really appreciate it. Oh, of course. Oh, of course. Yeah. No, thank you. Just for folks who don't know your story all that well, uh, you had a, you had a tough childhood. You you lived in a car when you were when you were younger. You lived in an orphanage, I think, at one point. Um, it's an uncommon background for a modern politician. Can you talk a little bit about how that experience informed your your future political views and how it helped you decide to run for city council at such a young age? Well, you know, the experience that I had growing up in Cleveland, Ohio, is probably an experience that's uh, been shared by many Americans who are uh, who have fallen through the cracks in the economy. But for me, uh, that experience of living in 21 different places by the time I was 17, including a couple cars, of... Um, uh, spending a few months in an orphanage uh, when my after my mom had a nervous breakdown on the birth of her uh, sixth child. Um, the I'm the oldest of seven, uh, and and that the experience um, is is indelibly impressed on my awareness. I mean, I I I understand how difficult it is for people who are trying to make ends meet. I also understand people who are reaching up and trying to aspire to, to do, uh, uh, to do better in life. And because I've seen, I've seen, uh, the, the journey, I've experienced the journey, but I also know a lot of people I grew up with, including siblings, uh, didn't have the same 
breaks that I had in life. And I decided a long time ago, before I got into public life, that if I ever got anywhere in life, I would, uh, I would make it a point to not just remember where I came from, but to try to do something about the conditions uh, that I experienced uh, growing up. Uh, which are being experienced uh, today by so many people. You mentioned yet your mother had a nervous breakdown, as you said, after her postpartum postpartum nervous breakdown, um, postpartum depression. Um, right. What did? How was she treated? Like, was there a? Was she? Was there a support system for that? Was there medical care that was? Was she covered? How? How well, did? Well, she she was able to she was able to get medical care. Uh, and, you know, my dad as a teamster had uh, access to a, a, a fairly decent health plan at that point. Uh, but there was nowhere for the children to go other than to leave uh, the newborn with some relatives. And uh, the rest of us went to uh, what was then known as Parmadale in Cleveland. It's a Catholic orphanage. And it was, uh, although it was a period we were there for probably about three months it, over the holidays, uh, it was. It was tough, uh, and it was tough thinking that you're not going to see your parents again. And uh, for my mom, it took her quite a while to recover. It probably took her a year to recover. Um, and we, we we moved out to a farm for a while in Michigan from Ohio. And during that time, she was, was able to um, get her smile back and get her, her sense of vitality back. But let's face it, for any, any, any woman who's ever given birth to uh, 10, as she did, uh, with uh, th- three not uh, quite making it to birth um, and raising seven children, it, it, it was a tremendous strain on her. And uh, she, she was well-educated. She taught me to read by the time I was three years old. Oh, wow. And, uh, and that, that was probably the single most important factor in my growing up that I could read so early. And, and uh, my, my mom did that. And how old were you when this happened? When you lived, uh, you went to live in the... Um, I think it was 12 or 13. 12 or 13, you said? Okay. So that's like a very formative well, we, age, we, right? We, we were living in Parmadale when I was about 11 years old. 11, yeah. And, but, you know, but when we were... Uh, and we were living in a car before that. Uh, the, the tremendous stress that a family had then, and today in some families experience it, where you aren't sure where you're going to live. I mean, even though my dad worked uh, pretty steadily, uh, the size of the family was such, and the expenses of a large family was such that he was never able to make ends meet. And not only that, but you also had the uh, insults which happen in the inner city where people are buying television sets that don't work, cars that break down. Uh, <laughs> there, there's all the scam artists that are out there uh, uh, beating people up. Uh, we, we experienced that, and that, of course, gave me a great sympathy for consumer uh, matters. I, I, and led, uh, whether people Cleveland know it or not, actually led to my efforts to form uh, Cleveland's, uh, help form Cleveland's Department of Consumer Affairs back in uh, 1972. Because wow. so, you saw people getting ripped off? Absolutely. I mean, you know, wherever you turn. <laughs> uh, the, the life in the inner city, uh, it's not just what David Kaplowitz wrote about saying, poor pay more. Uh, and it's a uh, current problem as well. 
but it's also you know people selling life insurance policies on the children, and uh, you know it's everywhere you everywhere you turn there's some kind of a scam going on. And you know, I of course it made me rather street smart, and I took those street smarts into government. Well, okay, so l- let's get to that. So you're 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 19, 20 years old. You decide to run for the city council. Uh, right. Where did that idea come from? And then you, you, you don't have any money. Uh, did you did you actually have an expectation that you were going to get elected? And what was what was the plan? And how did you manage to do it? You did it actually by the time you were twenty two, twenty three, if I'm not mistaken. Well, but I, look, I was working at the night desk at the plane dealer answering phones, and some guy called in from a bar said they had a candidate who was going to run for council, and I had no idea about city council. I actually was interested in my mid-teens to being a congressperson. I even wrote it in an autobiography that I uh, wrote, I think, in the 10th grade. Uh, I wanted to be in national politics. But when I heard about uh, this uh, rattling going on from a bar, I thought, I just turned to an assistant city editor and I said, "How does, uh, what do you have to do to be a councilman? He says, well, you have to file petitions. And then the next day he smiled and he said, why, are you interested? And I thought, hey, yeah, I am. <laughs> it was in the neighborhood I lived in. And so that uh, one thing led to another. I took out petitions. I started knocking on doors. Uh, one disadvantage I had is while I may have been uh, 20, I looked like I was 12. <laughs> and the first door I knocked on, a woman uh, looked at me, uh, walked away for a second. I waited uh, nonplussed, and she came forward, opened the screen door, and passed some coins in my hands and said, I thought I already paid you for the paper. Oh, my God, that's really <laughs> funny. And, and, you know, it was just a problem with credibility. People had no idea that uh, uh, of my age. And uh, when I uh, ran a closest race that anybody had run to this uh, uh, incumbent, uh, then people started to pay attention. And so the, you, you go on, you, you make the city council in your early 20s. I think you're, you're mayor by the time you're 30 or 31. 31, yeah. Yeah, so were you the, where does that fit in the in the history of youngest elected politicians in the country? Was, was either of those things? Well, a, well the, 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 headline, the headline in the Cleveland Plain Dealer uh, the, the the subhead said youngest big city mayor wins by three thousand votes, and that was uh, uh, that was in the Plain Dealer on uh, Wednesday. I think it was November ninth, nineteen seventy seven. So yeah, I um, uh, I I started uh, very early. Uh, Ten years after I started in politics, I was elected mayor. Wow! And immediately you had a very high profile clashes with some of the, the industrial and financial powers in the city. You clashed with the uh, light utility over the, 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 the baseball stadium, if I'm not mistaken, right? And then there was well, another... Mm-hmm. Well, let, let me, if I may, mm-hmm. um, I was elected mayor of Cleveland on a promise to save the city's municipal electric system from a takeover by a utility monopoly. For all intents and purposes, the system was sold. Uh, I blocked it with a petition drive which led to me becoming a candidate for mayor. And this was a defining issue in the mayor's race in 1977. And I was elected on the promise to save the electric system, which provided the people of Cleveland with uh, cheaper electricity and uh, savings on street lights and providing electricity to dozens of city facilities. But what happened, uh, while well, my first act in office was to declare that the sale of Muni Light was dead and that Muni Light was, uh, in fact, uh, uh, assured of being in public control. 
at that very moment, uh, the uh, utility that I was contesting with and their bank partners laid a trap, which led to uh, December 15, 1978, me being told, Either I sell that uh, electric system to the uh, its competitor, uh, private utility monopoly, or the banks would not renew the city's credit on loans I hadn't even taken out uh, on, on fourteen and a half million dollars in loans. So that that was a pivotal moment in my life, not just my career, where I had to decide what I stood for. Did I stand for the people's right to own a utility they could call their own? Did I stand for their right to be able to save money on, a, on an electric bill? Uh, what did I stand for? Did I stand for the autonomy of city government to be able to make decisions without uh, the, uh, uh, the pressure from interest groups? And so I, I refused uh, to sell. And uh, the uh, biggest bank in Ohio, uh, which was also a major shareholder in the utility, the private utility, uh, refused to renew the city's credit unprecedented. Cleveland went into default, first city to go into any fiscal default since the Great Depression. And, um, uh, you know, the pressure on me was enormous. The media was part of it. They were all aligned with the utility. The, uh, the social reality and political reality of Cleveland had been reconstructed to uh, assume I had no other alternative but to sell. But I said no. And uh, uh, that cost me the mayor's office, but, you know, 15 years later, I made a comeback. I think you also told me a story once about using eminent domain to block the sale of a, a hospital or, or the, the closing of a hospital. Well, I, you know, I had, uh, eminent domain is something that uh, cities usually only use to help developers. And I was ready to use eminent domain to expand the city's electric system to, uh, uh, to, to save public, you know, to uh, say to protect the public interest at any turn. Uh, the, the one thing you know that I haven't said anything about that probably bears repeating right now is that 40 years ago I started a book about this experience as mayor of Cleveland, taking on the banks and utilities and the mob for that for that matter, because there were three assassination attempts. Um, and I just finished the book recently. <laughs> it's called. The working title is called The Division of Light and Power. It's uh, about 618 pages of uh, text with over 3,000 footnotes uh, in addition to that. And uh, it's it's really the story of one young person's uh, clash with the powers that be in a community and the insistence that there is such a thing as a public interest, which every public official has an obligation to uphold. And it's a it's a wild story. I just finished it, and I'm you know out there right now. Um, I'll be st- I'll be looking for a publisher soon. And w- can you talk about the assassination attempts? Yeah, I uh, there was one attempt uh, on, in uh, in January of '77 um, when I uh, uh, you know was starting up this fight to protect the electric system. Uh, a high powered rifle shot through my house where, you know, where I'm <laughs> calling from right now. And, uh, I had just got up out of my chair. The, the, the bullet missed, I could, the bullet missed my head by a fraction of an inch and went through, uh, the, went clear through the house. Um, and then, uh, the, uh, there was another one on Easter Sunday, 78, where, 
uh, police chased the guy away with a uh, from the, with a shotgun, and he uh, basically in a tussle with police escaped. And then, a, and then another one, which was a subject of a U.S. Senate subcommittee on organized crime investigation, uh, where I was supposed to be the grand marshal in a parade in the black community, and uh, the mafia uh, there was a mafia hit planned, and um, uh, and I. Uh, I would have been in that parade, except that when I was getting ready to go to the parade, I had a, um, a bleeding ulcer that came out of nowhere. And uh, I was rushed to the hospital and transfused uh, uh, eventually with about six units of blood. And I almost died from that, but it saved my life because I wasn't, uh, I, I wasn't in the parade. So, you know, I've, I've had my uh, uh, share of ups and downs and of... Um, conflicts in public life. But the one thing that I have always felt is that it's critical. Just stay true to who you are and true to who you represent and, and, uh, and don't, uh, and don't feel that you have to give in, uh, no matter what powers are arrayed against you, you just, you know, you have to stand for something. And that's basically the approach I take in life. So that experience of running for office at a very young age, uh, succeeding without a whole lot of institutional backing, you take on a lot of financial and industrial powers in office, it, it, you kind of repeat uh, that whole plot later on at the federal level when you decide in the early 2000s to run for president. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what your thinking was in, in 2004? Uh, prior to that election, because it, it was a bit of a similar well, situation, right? I yeah, mean, I, it, well, I'll tell you what happened. You know, in um, uh, you have to go back to the uh, Clinton administration's uh, attack on uh, Serbia. They decided to bomb Serbia at a time that the people there were were really interested in the overthrow of Milosevic, and people, and you know. I saw in the Democratic caucus normally calm, placid people rally to a bombing, of, uh, and um, and that led me to become involved uh, sub rosa in an event, in a uh, effort that surfaced uh, that blocked uh, Clinton's uh, uh, congressional approval for the uh, for the war. But that got me thinking about war and about how wars start and how governments approve of them and how people get swept up in it. And so uh, when after 9-11, I, I saw the country swept up in this war fury again. And I started to dissect what was going on, uh, whether the call for war was legitimate or not. And I, I actually have posted on the Internet, on a, if somebody typed in October 2nd, 2002, uh, uh, a analysis of Iraq war resolution, where I, I knew then that uh, there was no legitimate reason to go to war against Iraq, and I laid it out, and and so I, and then I saw what was happening. Notwithstanding that, how we went to war, and and, and innocent people were dying, American troops were dying, uh, a, a country was being wrecked, our country, our aspirations at home were being destroyed, and so when when I saw that, I said, you know, I, I, unless someone else comes forward, I'm going to run, as as improbable as my candidacy was. And may still seem in retrospect to some. I determined that that if no one else was going to make the war an issue, I would. And so uh, that that led me on a on an extraordinary journey across the country, meeting people and seeing how how the American people, by and large, 
uh, are have a lot in common, and what they have in common is they want decent lives for their families. They they, they want uh, uh, to make sure that they're safe. They uh, and, and they they're not interested in sending troops around the world to kill other people. Uh, and you know, I that that campaign uh, proved to me that there's an underlying unity in America, but our politics are so divisive and so uh, pecuniary in nature that. Uh, it's very tough to connect with uh, with the American people on on their level of aspirations. That connection you talk about, that unity on that issue and and some others, you know, including like you know working class politics. The I've noticed in sort of recent media treatments of your career that oftentimes, for instance, the Washington Post talked about how your politics. Uh, represent the sweet spot between where Sandersism meets Trumpism. They talked about your nearly Trumpian parables of good and evil. Uh, do, is there a, an issue now where any politician who tries to uh, breach, uh, build a bridge between left and right gets that comparison? In other words, you're appealing to Trump people. There's, there's an issue there. There's a problem there. You have to uh, look at the mindset uh, in the world today, you know, which of course affects our politics, uh, we we have a tremendous amount of polarization uh, and compartmentalized thinking, and people uh, people have trouble holding holding complexities. They have trouble with uh, mutually seemingly mutually contradictory uh, premises existing simultaneously, and so the. The idea that one can uh, can unify left and right seems uh, uh, quite uh, impossible to some. Uh, but I would I would argue that that even what we try to describe as left and right is is uh, is fundamentally flawed. That uh, and 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 not just uh, um, uh, you know not just with respect to uh, the definitions. Uh, but that, uh, to me, there's nothing left or right about uh, about healthcare, about education, about jobs, and the attempt to try to turn it into uh, polarities is, to me, a um, uh, an effort to avoid debate and uh, not to encourage it. Uh, there, there's not always uh, two sides to every question. There's not two sides to uh, whether you assassinate uh, a foreign leader or not. Uh, you know, there are certain principles that need to guide a country that there, there, there are um, uh, that are beyond notional and go to verities of what what life is about, what's a country about, what what the what the practical aspirations of people are concerned about. And so, you know, left, right to me doesn't doesn't do it. Uh, labels don't do it. Uh, they don't describe people's uh, challenges and their daily their their uh, ability their ability to be able to make it day to day. So I I, I reject the uh, uh, the foundational aspects of of present day partisan politics and and say that it doesn't serve anybody except a narrow elite uh, and and often disserves uh, the people of this country by not truly offering any kind of a choice or, or even a solid um, uh, a position from which uh, one can 
uh, come to a, uh, a fair conclusion about uh, uh, about uh, whether whether one approves or disapproves of what s- someone's offering. It, it's all it's all smoke and mirrors and deception and and I I'm not interested in that. To me, you know, I'm if, if I ran into a guy in Cleveland uh, uh, who was standing on a corner and his his arm he rolled up his sleeve and his arm was filled with watches. I knew those watches were phony, and I know the political party is selling. Uh, is selling phony uh, solutions and phony offering phony proposals to the people of this country. So just getting back to 2004, you, you run for president on a platform that people thought at the time was crazy. They laughed at it, but it's, it's become mainstream. You were opposed to uh, NAFTA. You were for gay marriage. You were for, you were for marijuana legalization. Uh, you were against the Iraq War. Uh, universal health care. All these things are they're no longer. Nobody laughs at, at those issues anymore. What role do you think the the media had in convincing people to not take these things seriously? I, mean, I remember covering that campaign. It was very frustrating. I wondered what your experience was with that and how hard it was for you to try to get that message out. Well, one not be naive. You know, one need not be naive about the role of the media in, in our society when it comes to war. Media is uh, essentially steer carriers, and today, you know, media uh, war is clickbait. And uh, we we have to understand that uh, the uh, conglomeration the media has affected the uh, uh, the politics of the country. And uh, there's no, you know, media generally is going to have. Uh, uh, sensibilities that uh, uh, align with the corporate interests of the owners. Uh, like A.J. Leibling said years ago, freedom of the press belongs to the person who owns one. So I, I think we have to um, uh, not, uh, we have to be realistic. Uh, the media beat the drums for the war in, in 2002-2003. The media permitted uh, George Bush to be able to conflate uh, Iraq and 9-11. <laughs> Uh, the media uh, uh, played gave great uh, amounts of coverage to those who are, were for the war, and very little coverage to those who opposed to it. Uh, and what's interesting, even to this day, those who opposed the war and those of us who were very vocal about it are, are seldom asked for our opinion about any other foreign policy. Well, those who were, you know, repeatedly wrong, not just about um, Iraq. But, but about Libya and, uh, and, and a number of other con- conflicts and, about, and wrong about Iran, uh, they're continually asked for their opinion and their opinions are arrogated to some type of, uh, uh, of uh, uh, ceremony uh, of, of a religion or something. You know, we, we really have a problem and the, the airwaves are, are saturated with the opinions of those who, who are... Uh, who are interested in war, and in some cases have a financial stake in war. I remember back then, one one of the things that you were uh, well known for was you had proposed the Department of Peace, uh, and I remember the reaction of, of the press to that idea. Has, has anyone ever given you a good reason why that isn't a good idea? I mean, that was that was yeah, yeah. It cost too much. In 1972, I proposed. Uh, free transit in Cleveland, and the the opposition to it said, "Well, if you have that, everybody's going to want to ride the bus." Oh, how terrible! <laughs> That's awful. You know, you know when I when I when I proposed the Department of Peace, the, the 
the idea of it is, because it's, it's, it's an active consideration, is that, um, that we can teach peace if violence is a learned response from all the stimuli that any of us get in our environment, then, uh, then you can also learn peace. And so the, the, the idea is you start teaching peace-giving, peace-sharing, mutuality, looking at the other person as an aspect of oneself, and you start doing that at a very early age. And so you, you, you build peace into the culture of the country. Uh, and as opposed to war, which is so deeply ingrained, and the violence that comes with it. So the Department of Peace, the idea was that you'd have a domestic component, and uh, which would deal with um, uh, domestic violence, spousal abuse, child abuse, violence in the school, gang violence, gun violence, racial violence, violence against gays, police community relations, clashes, the police community clashes. And then on, a, on an international level, you uh, use diplomacy as you start to see problems percolating. So you, you, you do everything you can to avert conflict, and you train people to how to, how to do that. I, I take the, uh, the budget as being 1% of the current, uh, whatever the current uh, Pentagon budget would be. Then it was uh, about 4 it would have been $4 billion a year. But we need to create a structure in our society to... Give people some other some other options uh, that, that they don't feel like the only way that they can uh, deal with um, uh, their problems is through lashing out, is through killing other people. And uh, and the thing that I, I I think it's critical to bring home is this: all this violence that the United States uh, wreaks around the world, all these wars and undeclared wars and and uh, the various ways of our government and working through hundreds of bases in 70 different countries. Is there anyone out there that doesn't understand that that violence that we sow abroad comes back home? The the world is interconnected. It's interdependent. There is no way to avoid uh, when you start, uh, when you kill people abroad, that doesn't come back. You do not, what you do is you create a consciousness of violence, and that consciousness achieves a certain velocity with, you know, with the media and with movies and everything else. And before you know it, uh, life doesn't seem to have as much value, and it's a problem which exists today. We just this week was Martin Luther King Day, and and I mean he's someone who really talked about that the intersection of different types of violence and you know the violence here in the United States and then the violence of uh, the war in Vietnam. Um, but so many of the people who claim to tout his ideas or respect him are the same people who would mock something like what you're talking about. Look, I'm, I'm talking from Cleveland right now. There's a tremendous amount of violence that's happening on the streets of the city. Um, how does it ha- How does it get that way? How does a society get that way? Uh, you know, we're not looking at those things. We're, we're, we're really... It, it's almost as if people believe you can't do anything about it. Uh, and, and, and so I believe you can do something about it. I believe that, that we're, we're not, uh, we're not here to, uh, uh, to live, uh, in a world where people believe that life is a funeral march to the grave. Uh, life is to be celebrated. Life, life is to be treasured and cherished. And, and, and we need to do everything we can to protect, uh, the, the instinct 
towards um, uh, it's what it's what the poet called the instinct within us that reaches and towers, and we we have to protect our ability to reach up to to build a better world than maybe is a world even beyond our imagination, and and violence cuts cuts at. In that vein, again, a lot of a lot of the ideas that you ran on in 2004 and 2008. Looking back, people say, "Oh, well, that's obvious." Well, you know, universal health care—what a great idea! Um, you know, legalization of marijuana. I feel like one of the things that people are eventually going to realize is obvious is your attitude towards um, the mixture of of politics and funding from. Uh, weapons contractors. I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you don't feel that you can ha- you can really uh, pursue any kind of progressive agenda if you're being funded by people who who make money off war. And that seems like it seems obvious now, but it, but uh, it, it's not yet in the mainstream. We have to be aware of the extent to which uh, war is built into our system. Uh, every congressional district has defense contractors who lobby members of Congress uh, when uh, the uh, budget authorizations and appropriations are up. Uh, and so there's and there's a constituency to keep the spending going and to keep the um, the use of those uh, war material uh, ever present. And it's so distorted our priorities. You know the. Uh, uh, Joseph uh, Stiglitz and uh, Linda Vilmus uh, wrote the book about the three trillion dollar war, which is probably more looking like five, if not six, uh, the result of Afghanistan and and um, Iraq. People make money off of war. I mean, it's it, it's as uh, General Stanley Butler uh, once said, it's a racket. And when you understand that it's a racket. To understand how how people's lives are are put on the line for it, it's horrific. And uh, you know you don't need to to be uh, the the aging pop star boy George to say war is stupid. Uh, it, it it has it has it has no real purpose in a world which is is technologically advanced, is interconnected and interdependent, where I can I can you know speak. You across uh, 600 miles on a, on a uh, cell phone, or I can call the other side of the world, uh, send a text message in a matter of seconds to anybody anywhere in the world. What are we talking about here? Why are we still in, you know, looking looking for war when we ought to be looking for peace? Why are we looking for opportunities to stir things up? As a nation, you know why? Why can why do we even have people in our government who can influence a president to assassinate a leader as they did at the beginning of the year when uh, Iranian General uh, Soleimani was was murdered? You know we we have to demand peace. We cannot uh, accept anymore our government spending the treasure of our nation, distorting our national priorities. Uh, we're losing the the chance for the lives that all of us want. Uh, in these wars. And, and you know, I'm sick of people using the flag. I'm sick of people uh, using a distorted version of patriotism. I say it's patriotic to have education for all, 
free college for all, health care for all, decent wages for every American. That's patriotic. It's patriotic to have clean environment. It's patriotic to have safe streets. Uh, we, we need to rework that idea of patriotism and, and, and tear it away from the uh, idea that it's only you can only be patriotic when you uh, when you stand uh, and beat the drums for war. We we absolutely have to change America's role in the world. I I say close the bases abroad, bring America home. Uh, we, we don't need to be spending the, the billions of dollars that we do uh, uh, having a uh, a position uh, of oversight of the world uh, through our military. Uh, there's America needs a fundamental and structural change in its uh, in its uh, governance and in its economy for this country to be able to uh, prosper. It's funny how people will call you naive or call people with the view that you're expressing naive, but they uh, don't believe or acknowledge how much having like lobbyists influences the decisions to go to war. Like they're actually the incredibly naive people who who think that th- that we go to war for reasons that are like moral or politically pure. Um, and I had I had two other questions. Um, one is if you think that the attempt to kind of equate left and right um, is a cynical, like w- people will say that Trump and Bernie are similar in a way that I actually think that they're just making the case that Trump, that Bernie is electable against Trump because they're saying that he appeals to some of the same people Trump does. And I, I haven't really seen that before. I think it's a really weird argument. Um, well, they also say the same thing about Tulsi a little bit. Yeah, sure. Tulsi and Trump. Yeah. yeah well, like the idea that because you as a politician can speak to a certain population that we would like to win, that makes you somehow um, Trump, Trumpian, as opposed to competitive against them? It's an important question because it really is what frames our politics today. Um, I, the, you, can, you, know, you can simultaneously argue, well, there are people who align on the left and there are people who align on the political right. We got that. The, the concern is, do they have any underlying mutuality of interest? And, and I say, yes, uh, there are. Uh, but you have to take time to develop them. And why Why is there such an emphasis on left and right? It's marketing. <laughs> you know, there's, there's people who, who, uh, to whom political resources are allocated based on, on their insistence that they stand uh, with the left or they stand with the right. Uh, you, you know, there's, <laughs> there's fundraising that goes on along those lines. Uh, but the real world... Uh, exists uh, not as uh, a you know pure liberal or pure conservative. There's elements of each that thread their way through all of our lives, and it's the po- it's the polarization that's the problem. It's the belief that unless you unless you buy the kit and caboodle of a political ideology, uh, you somehow aren't a righteous person. And this is all cra- crazy. The the country's being sharply divided over over ideas that that really aren't very well thought out. I mean, the, I, if, if you would get underneath this all, maybe it's the fact that outside of predatory capitalism, America really doesn't have a, a, a cogent political philosophy. It seems like it's also a way to delegitimize things like um, anti-war sentiment right. or 
the embrace right, of exactly. universal programs, if you pretend that those things are Trumpian and Sandersian or, or Trumpian and Gabbardian, then they're extremist things, even though we know that they actually have mass support. So it's a way to undermine actual universal programs or peace. I mean, not to be too That's dramatic true. about it. That's true. And on that note of universal programs, I just want to ask, we've heard some um, candidates like uh, Klobuchar and Mayor Pete make the argument that universal programs are unfair because the wealthy will take advantage of them and we shouldn't ask poor people to be paying for those. And as someone who, um, you know, experienced the hardships that you did as, as a young person, especially, what is your response to that? <laughs> well, look, uh, let's, 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 let's get real here. I don't think there should be means testing for any federal, uh, uh, program. There, there shouldn't be means testing for social security. We should take the caps off for sure. Uh, as to how much income is, uh, is, is available to be taxed. Uh, but there shouldn't be mean testing for education. Uh, everyone should be able to share in the bounty of the country. Right. And, and the fact that others want to uh, means test uh, is just a way of dividing people and, and having people who have uh, great influence say, well, you know, I'm, if I'm not going to get anything, I, no one should. Right. And so it's so disingenuous because it's such a way they're pretending that they're doing it to protect poor people and working class people from having to 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 take on pay for the, you know, people like Baron Trump, who's going to go to a public. Yeah, it's going to be inherently unfair. Yeah, inherently unfair. But I I mean, one of the reasons that universal programs are so important and means tested uh, programs can be so dangerous is because of the stigma that goes along with them. Um, And did you experience that when you were growing up? Like, was there a sense that you were getting special treatment or you were dependent on handouts and in a way that you wouldn't have felt had more programs been it wasn't let me tell you if it wasn't for the nuns at the various schools i went to you know there are times our family wouldn't have even had uh, decent clothes on our back i mean i remember one year i wore one pair of pants for most of the year they were uh turquoise blue uh with black piping it looked probably like something out of a psychedelic prison and uh, it was the only pair of pants I had until one day a neighborhood dog went after me and ripped them. And then I had to wear ripped pants for school until a teacher saw it and said, hey, uh, what's going on? And that led to her giving clothes to uh, our family. Uh, you know, the idea of a handout, it's about a hand up. It's not about a handout. I mean, everybody should have a chance in our society to make it. And for those who are less fortunate with a little bit of help, they can become more fortunate. Uh, I, you know, it's not, we can't, here again, we divide people. We divide people and say, well, haves and have nots. No, we're all, if we are truly one nation, if we're truly one nation, then we should be looking at, at ourselves as, as one, not just haves and have nots. We, we need to have a more uh, fair distribution of opportunities. Uh, and, uh, and the, tax system is one way that can uh, help make that happen. Ending war can help make that happen. Changing our monetary policy so uh, that you don't have money being created out of nothing and give, given to the banks and, and, and who are uh, foreclosing homes of people uh, uh, who they sold no-doc low-doc loans. I, we, we have a country that is increasingly divided on class uh, lines, uh, sometimes on race, uh, on on economic lines. And while you can't, there's always going to be so, some of that, 
we can, we can never let it be institutionalized. And these these programs like healthcare for all and social security and education for all are ways of of protecting what is essentially American. That is that we have uh, some underlying unity of, of cause and purpose in our nation. Congressman, I know we we yeah, we'll so let great. you go in a moment. Uh, just really quickly, we're about to head into uh, Iowa, New Hampshire. This has been an unprecedented, crazy uh, campaign season. What's what's your diagnosis of what's going on with the Democratic Party? They had 29 candidates run this year. It almost seems like the the party bureaucracy is trying to prevent at all costs moving in the direction that you suggested uh, so many years ago. What do you think? How do you think this is going to shake out? And what what do you think they're thinking in terms of their strategy going forward? Well, look, you you have. Um Two parties, but they're actually one party of a corporate um, behemoth in America. And what we need to do is to really consider whether or not the two-party system is, serves this country, um, whether or not it's time to decouple presidency from uh, the two-party system, which uh, rules Congress. Uh, this is a, a, there's a fundamental flaw and a system which lets corporations dictate the choices that people have at the end. And with uh, Buckley versus Vallejo and Citizens United, that's kind of where we're at. Um, and, uh, you know, one thing about the Sanders campaign is he's been raising a lot of money uh, independent of those interests. Uh, that's, I think, why the party will continue to try to frustrate his efforts. Uh, the same with Tulsi Gabbard on another level. Uh, look, political. Let me just add this. Um, it, to me, it it it's never made never made sense that there's only two ways of looking at the world, <laughs> and it's, you know, a Democrat way and a Republican way. It's just it, it's 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 past confounding. It's it's a demonstrable lie uh, that does violence uh, to. Uh, uh, to the idea of uh, of an of an America, uh, which uh, out of many we are one, uh, we're ignoring the diversity of opinions in this country, and in some ways that's what political parties seem to be set up to do. We've had terrible wildfires in Australia this year. I know this is an issue that's near and dear to your heart, climate change. You proposed ages ago uh, a works green administration. What needs to be done? And is this the biggest issue for you this year uh, going forward? Well, it's interrelated with war because war is ecocide. War destroys, if you want to talk about things that will raise uh, atmospheric carbon levels. Uh, you know, war is nothing but an exchange of uh, of destructive levels of carbon propelled by carbon um, and, and propelled, I might add, by fossilized thinking. Uh, so you, you have to uh, you have to ask yourself, what can we do to start to bring down levels of atmospheric carbon so we can ameliorate some of the changes that are, are happening? We're not going to reverse them, but we can slow them down. Um, I, I, I think, you know, one of the things is... Um, uh, taking a regenerative approach towards a agriculture, uh, looking at carbon sequestration, uh, how to accelerate it using certain growing methods, uh, changing uh, fuels that are used. Uh, perhaps green green jet fuel will be a direction. 
uh, that uh, some of the airlines will go and some of them are looking at it right now, or, and some are even experimenting with it, uh, using alcohol instead of oil for fuel, the, the, the you know, waste to alcohol, uh, using waste to create fuel, and uh, that would supplant uh, oil. Uh, and what's happening is there is a growing awareness on the part of corporations that they need to take a different uh, direction. Oil companies know this. They're, they only spent perhaps 1% of their revenue in looking towards the greening of their industry last year, but they're, they're, they understand that it's not sustainable, the track that they're on. Investments, uh, investment companies are aware of it. Some big investment banks in Europe, as well as uh, even even a firm uh, such as BlackRock is now looking at investments in, in uh, protecting and, and restoring the climate. So I think we're seeing a shift come about, but it's not happening fast enough. And, and the undercurrent of our politics, which is so uh, wrapped up in, in, in war for oil, uh, is, is keeping us locked into uh, this, uh, you know, for the next few years, certainly, and into a into policies which um, keep using fossil fuel, which use oil and gas, and that you know, and fracking, which is so destructive of the environment and public health. So we can go in a new direction. We you know we can have a works green administration, but you have to have uh, an awareness in Washington uh, of the urgency of taking that direction. And you know there are people who are aware, but. Certainly not enough, and this is where the country ought to be uniting now. This is where the country's uh, efforts ought to be, not in trying to rattle the swords against Iran, but how can we unite the world community? You know, years ago, I, I was with um, Mikhail Gorbachev at a summit in Johannesburg, South Africa, where we talked about a global green uh, project. And, you know, we need to unite the world community instead of playing uh, uh, the game of nations, a uh, geopolitical uh, uh, game that uh, that uh, would would put us on the precipice of war continually uh, to control uh, resources, mainly oil. Uh, that if we keep uh, having fights over that, uh, we'll we'll stay addicted to carbon and addicted to war. Last thing, Congressman. Uh, I- on the trail I saw you, I would never saw anybody whose books were more marked up in the margins and who seemed to read as voraciously as you do, even during a political campaign. A lot of our yeah. listeners are very um, in despair right now about media choices, how, the, how they stay informed. Do you have any advice for people about what they can do to keep informed in an, in an era when uh, traditional media doesn't seem to address a lot of what people are concerned about? You know, I look at uh, uh, media the way I walked into a cafeteria, although I have to confess I'm vegan, so my choices are a little bit but 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 as i as I do that i i I read everything I can get my hands on and watch anything that uh, might relate to it. and it's uh, my tastes are very eclectic. and so um, I'm uh, uh, I, I find that you know I'm not interested in carrying anyone's intellectual uh, water, uh, but I'll 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 read uh, uh, across the political spectrum, and I'll you know I'll look at uh, sometimes uh, abstracts of, uh, of university studies, or I'll also look at speeches and 
you know, read my uh, uh, the, the local papers and then the national and international, talk to people around the world constantly, and you get a sense of what's going on. You, you know, it's not about being right or wrong. It's being uh, informed to the best of your ability so you can be a good citizen. That's uh, that's. I think all of us owe, owe that to each other and to our country. Thank you so much. Thank you so, so much, great. Dennis. Yeah. I really appreciate it. Let me just say that I'm 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 really grateful for the chance to uh, to do this. Thanks so much, Thanks Dennis. Again. Appreciate Thanks. it. Have a great day. Talk to you. Bye. Take care. Bye bye. You know, I learned something today. What'd you learn? <laughs> but this is, I love our idea. We're like, we have the idea to say what we've learned, but so far we're really good at the, like, I learned something today, but then we don't recap it. We so don't really we gotta, recap. We got to have, like, what well, are I think, our takeaways? I think you learned that Dennis Kucinich is a very erudite, erudite guy. Right? That yeah, I couldn't you, believe right? how, yeah, I mean, he's like way nerdier than I thought. He's very learned. And hey, I, I would like to learn if you had ever witnessed this on the campaign I have. Trail. Interesting Intense. that you should ask that, yeah. Katie. Yeah, no, so um, when I first covered Kucinich in 2004, I remember seeing him, I think it was at the University of New Hampshire, the first time I saw him, and he had given a speech, and after the speech, he, he runs off and he reaches into a, uh, into a bag, and, which is like full of books, like chock full of books, and he pulls out a book, and he goes and just sits down in a corner and starts reading to himself. And I see that he's, his books are all marked up, which I would later see that he does right. all the time. He's, every book is in, written up in the margins. But this is a presidential candidate uh, is off reading. So I go and ask him, like, is this for a speech? Like, are you picking out a passage or something? Right. No, he's just reading. It yeah. was just like somebody in between events was just educating himself, yeah. which is totally unusual for a presidential candidate. They're always talking to each other, right. you know, so. He's not calculating on that front, at least. Not at all. He didn't care what people thought of him, you know, yeah. in term, and uh, he's just a super interesting guy. He's very intellectually um, courageous, yeah. I would say. Yeah. Like he, he, the thing that I always thought was distinguished him as a politician was that um, he looked at running for president the way of uh, an intellectually serious person yeah. would like what if you were actually trying to solve all these right, problems yeah. with uh, and with the actual best solutions what would you come up with right. you know as opposed to what I can get what would actually work yes, you know but I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. I suppose what, what, what would pass right he's not right because there's like he you know she has a plan for that. That's the whole technocracy like slogan. Right. He's not like that at all. He's very well read and very erudite, but he also has a very strong moral framework, which he owns. He is very well read, and he talks about how he reads abstracts of um, academic papers and yeah. stuff. And you heard him. No, yeah, I mean, he, 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 he reads. He reads philosophers he doesn't agree with. I always thought that was interesting. Yeah, it's very important. But you know, the, like his idea about the Department of Peace. Yeah. Not to go on about this, but. You know, he he looks at all these Peace different monger. issues. You know, mass shootings, yeah. Yeah. domestic violence, uh, crime on the streets, all these things. And, and the way he looks at it is, these are all it's all one problem, yeah. right? So one. if we we could we could go in and we could teach people the you know as an affirmative um, value how to you know non nonviolent conflict yeah. resolution, we could probably take care of a lot of these problems much more cheaply, easily, right. and we, we wouldn't go to war as much. All yeah. these things. Let's devote one one hundredth of the Pentagon budget to fixing that, yeah. and let's see what happens. And they just the, the degree to which he was laughed at for even yeah. bringing these things up is just crazy. But hopefully, eventually, the, the people will come around on some of this M stuff. My, and they have. My dad is like that. He 
books a lot. Like if we go away for the weekend, he'll have a suitcase full of books mm-hmm. and a rolly thing. So like <laughs> it gets really annoying. It'll like derail all the plans. Like people think they're taking driving upstate for a weekend and they don't anticipate how much room they have to have in the car and stuff. <laughs> what uh, does he read? Anything from like neurology books to crappy mysteries to like, I don't know, philosophy books. But he does not write and he would not respect the, the Kucinich uh, method in this because he does not believe in writing in books so, uh, uh-huh. or folding books. He'll highlight and underline like medical textbooks. That, but that's nothing, a thing. Yeah. Readers have different yeah. views on that. I, li- I like writing stuff out. In Me books. too. I love yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right. Great show. Uh, so yeah, we'll, show, uh, yeah. we'll see you again next week. Yeah. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.